What if well-being is just the baseline? What if we could lead a life of purpose and pleasure? Welcome to the Leading with Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Gretchen Fox Palmer, and here we will explore this next edge of life and work. Today, I have a different type of episode for you. In this episode, my husband, Alex Palmer, and host of the Black Dog Cast, interviews me. We discuss mental health and well-being at work. He asked me, what actually is conscious leadership? We talk about how toxic culture is at the heart of the great resignation, why conscious leadership is important in the modern workplace, and how peer conversations helps with burnout and improves emotional capacity and resiliency. And we get into some controversial topics, as husband and wife, I think, sometimes do. Without further ado, here's Alex. Gretchen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. For is this my podcast or your podcast? I, I don't, I, I'm not sure, but I think we want to do more podcasts together. So I guess we'll figure that part out, but I'm glad to be on a podcast with you. Yeah. Well, I'm a pro, you know. You are. <laughs> I love listening to your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is a first, obviously, it's a first uh, having you on the podcast. It's first doing a podcast in person with the other guests. Yeah. As opposed to them being remote. Um, and we're going to talk about conscious leadership. That's my jam. All right. Well, before I get into like how you got into all of this, what is conscious leadership? Ultimately, consciousness equals self-awareness. So it's leading from a place of self-awareness. And the people that are the most conscious leaders are the ones who are the people who ultimately like professional development and personal development and are seekers. They want to do a better job. They want to create better companies. They want to create better cultures. And they are the people who are leading us into what is the next wave of business. Okay. So it's like a leadership style, right? Because some of that stuff that you talk about that, I mean, I would think that applies to any business leadership, right? It should for sure, but we live but it's in a, the way that it's done. Hold on. I just want to say this other thing is that those all should apply and just be leadership, but that's not the truth of what leadership typically looks like. Um, you know, most of us have been steeped in a very toxic culture when it comes to work. The Industrial Revolution era really was about efficiency and productivity and trying to make humans into robots. Mm -hmm. And the thinking was kind of like, leave all your emotions at the door, show up, produce as much as humanly possible, and remove anything that gets in the way of that really including people's humanity mm -hmm. and their life experience and their emotions. And that has created a very dysfunctional culture, which people are rebelling against the world over right now. This is the whole heart of the great resignation. And so, sure, these are things that just should be leaders, but most leaders aren't doing the work they need to do to get this new conscious leadership type of leadership done and or also most leaders don't get the support they need to be able to do that work we give 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 to other people very rarely are people given to us we being leaders we being leaders right um okay so this is obviously something that you're into and that you're passionate about um ha like how do you get to this and and what does what does this look like for you? What are you doing in this space? Thank you um, for the question. I guess I'll try to be brief. Um, there's a few different sort of threads to how I got here. One being I was raised with by a mother who all is an entrepreneur, built her own business. I think she had like 400 employees when she sold that business, and she was always a thoughtful kind, intentional leader. Mm -hmm. 
So I've had that as a role model. Um, I'd say that's thread one. So kindness has been a way that I've been brought up. Um, then cut to me working as an adult and have had tremendous amount of exposure to toxic culture and, and perpetuated it myself. Um, so it's where I've gotten to is a lot in reaction to what I've experienced in the workplace. And then I've been a seeker and done personal development stuff. And I'm, I really enjoy that kind of as a hobby. I, I spend a lot of time and resources on my own personal development. And so I've had a lot of tools. And I've used a lot of tools on the personal side. And then over time, I've really integrated the two is what I'd say. Um, there was a, a very profound moment for me, though, when I was a entertainment executive and I went to Burning Man and I went to Burning Man with the intention of having some sort of spiritual breakthrough it was vague, but intentional about wanting to have some shift. And what happened was something that I really didn't get until reflecting on the trip, but that was a time of my life where I made a lot of money. I had a big expense account. I had celebrity access. I traveled when I want. I really, on paper, had everything that... You were living your best life. I mean, no, I actually was not living my best life. On paper, it looked like that. That's why I say it. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Because, like the, Because most people who are like supposedly, in quotations living their best life are just portraying a facade of here's my wonderful life. Right. And I believed in it, honestly. Um, I, there was a lot to enjoy. Uh, having access to money and celebrity is fun. And people treat you a specific way when you have that. And I think that kind of goes to my point in that when I was at Burning Man, at Burning Man, people aren't there to talk about work. Uh, people are there to have this alternative alternative reality experience, alternate reality experience. And so because people aren't there to talk about work, I found myself with no like interjection point to bring up my job so that people could treat me with the quote unquote respect that I thought I deserved and basically, you know, feed my ego and because there was no place for me to interject that, I literally had nothing to talk about. And the whole time, it's like it was a series of me opening my mouth and shutting my mouth again without saying a word for a week because I literally had no idea who I was outside of my work. My entire identity had been based around my work. And I walked away from that trip reflecting like, whoa, who am I? Who am I if I don't have this job? I don't like who I am right now and I need to figure this out. And I really set on a path of deconstructing all of it, dismantling a lot of stuff. And, you know, that's where I'm at now, I think is, um, that was 2012. So a decade later of intentionally questioning things that are the status quo in business, questioning my intention and why I'm doing what I'm doing and also really building out the other parts of my life that make me happy. Um, so, you know, over a decade of doing that, that means a whole bunch of different things. It means creating a company that's values-based. It means only wanting to work with other leaders who are doing this kind of work and choosing to do that and sacrificing money uh, if that's not in alignment. Mm -hmm. It means constant self-development. You know, I'm in constant programs and certifications and stuff like that, that, that help me grow into the kind of person that I want to be. It's about having company policies that support that, including diversity, inclusion, and belonging. It's about being open and really, I think, open to the places that maybe I'm not the best and reflecting on that and making positive change so that 
you know, all of the interactions I have and experiences I have are mutually um, kind and beneficial to everyone I interact with. There's a lot in there. <laughs> There's a lot in there. <laughs> um, okay. I want to talk about what this looks like now and what you're doing. But um, the first thing that came to mind when you were, when you were talking through this is, um, and, and this is maybe a way for people to, to um, understand this, um, who, who out there is doing this well that we, that we might know of? Like what high profile leaders are out there that, you know, that you, you're inspired by or you look at and you're like, okay, well, they're doing, maybe they're not doing the whole thing. Maybe they're doing a piece of it. Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, one example you can look at is people that are doing the work to have B certifications. B Corp. B Corp, yeah, yeah, certifications, because it's a lot of work and you have to really show the work that you're actively trying to be a good company. So anybody that has a B Corp cert has done a good job. I think, you know. Shout out to uh, Chris King Components oh. in the bike industry. One of the only B Corps in the bike business. Cool. Yes. <laughs> love that. And then, and, and the little I know about Chris King from you, I know that they really value culture mm -hmm. and the wellness of their employees over profitability. Yeah. For sure. Um, and then, you know, I think Patagonia was a super early leader. Yep. Yvonne. Chouinard. Chouinard. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> French. Um, mastery. So they, I think, are one of the biggest leaders. The company, and now, now their CEO, which I forget the woman's name that's now the CEO. Uh, Rose, somebody or other, isn't it? I think. And I've written yeah. a, a post that includes her name. So I hate that I'm forgetting her. So you'll have to put it in the show notes, maybe. But um, she's taken over the mantle. Uh, ben and Jerry's, you know, I think have done an amazing job. I think Target as a company does a great job. Um, you know, when you see companies align with their values, even if that means that they may lose some money, um, that's always for me an example of somebody that cares more about what they're doing than only making money. And look, we all, you know, want our businesses to make money. That's not, I don't think you have to sacrifice. In fact, um, the healing organization is a book uh, written by Raj Sisodia, who is one of the early founders of the conscious leadership movement and conscious capitalism movement. And in the healing organization and other books he's written, I think he's, I don't know, written half a dozen or so. He shows how um, actually more profitable companies are when they're creating the kind of cultures that people want to work at. And also, um, really giving themselves in their heart and soul and spirit, maybe soul and spirit, the same thing. We can get into that later. Um, to the work that they're doing, right? I mean, that's the and like bosses, employee leaders dream is for people to take on the business as much as they would if they were their own business. And I think over and over again, people with these kind of companies with this kind of culture have people that are rising above what's being asked of them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a whole bunch of different examples you can look at. Yeah. It's funny. I wrote down one when you were, when you were, when you were talking through that about companies that are, are not afraid to stand up for their principles, even if it hurts their bottom line. And, and that made me immediately think of Nike, but I wouldn't put them in this right. like conscious leadership. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've known people that have worked there that have said it's not necessarily a yeah. very nice place, but they do, they put their neck out and they stand up for, yeah. Um, you know, um, um, things like Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. And, and they took a lot of flack for that. Yeah. Um, but does it make you question whether, you know, are they almost being too savvy? Well, kind of, I guess that you know, brings up a myth, which is that um, conscious leadership is a destination mm -hmm. instead of a journey. And I think that, you know, it's not something that you arrive at one day and you're like, oh, you now have a, con you're a conscious leader. You have a conscious organization. It is a practice like yoga is a practice and you have to do it day in, day out. And, and, and companies and people can make conscious decisions and not have conscious culture throughout their whole organization. Um, you know, 
I applaud all positive movement. I just am always going to be pushing for more. Yeah. And, and having a conscious culture is I think where we're at today and, you know, doing it from a brand and a marketing perspective is important, but that's not the only thing. And I guess I don't think it's the most important thing either. Yeah. I guess another recent example here in the United States um, are companies that are coming out publicly and saying that they will continue to offer their employees support if they need an abortion, despite, you know, the possibility of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And you know, I'd like to talk about that for a second because okay. I was on a, a pretty good webinar recently um, by Prism Work or Prism Works. And this topic came up and when my opinion is that when companies are confused about which things to align with publicly, my line is human rights. I think human rights, we don't have to get into politics and I understand companies not want to get into politics, but I don't think human rights should be political. And I think all of us need to be standing up for human rights. Mm -hmm. And that includes a woman's right to have a t bodily autonomy. Mm -hmm. um, some companies, yes, are standing up for that. And I really appreciate it. I know a lot of companies are not standing up for it because they don't know how to talk about it. And yeah. I think that is something that comes up in this conversation a lot and that's a lot of the work i'm doing is you know it's like why are men talking more about feminism why aren't men talking more about roe v wade this is a family this affects families not just women mm -hmm. why is it only mostly women that are speaking about it um i think ultimately that's because most men don't know how and so i think that we need to, this is a work that needs to be done. We need to help people know how. And it's the same with companies. I think a lot of companies don't know what to do and don't know how to address these topics. But, you know, avoidance is not a solution. Yeah. I mean, it makes me question whether, um, and the, the example I saw was Salesforce, right? Salesforce.com. And they, they put a thing out saying that they will cover the relocation costs of a member of staff that li like let's say they have a somebody who lives in Texas and they can't get an abortion that they would pay for them to relocate to a state where they could get that. Mm -hmm. I mean that's all great. The cynic in me is kind of like they don't need to put PR out about that, right? It's it's kind of like getting extra points. Well, um, and that's and, not how I see it. No, okay, okay, but but um, like companies could just enact something like that privately without necessarily needing to, to put PR about it. And the other thing is, um, I don't know, from, like, from a, if you're a woman working in one of one of these companies, are you really going to go, like, it takes a lot to go to your to your boss or your HR department and have this conversation. And, and we're getting off on a tangent here, but I, I just, I don't know. I just I have whether. two thoughts. Okay. Number one, it's most important if, for the values to be enacted from a process, policy, infrastructure way than mm -hmm. a marketing communications way. Number one, most important. Number two, though, voices matter. Right. Standing up and saying and communicating and putting the release out, this is what we're doing, matter and help move the needle and help encourage other companies to do the same type of work. Yeah. So I think it's important and I, and I definitely applaud them doing that. Um, Will a woman go, and again, I don't know why we have to talk about this from a women's perspective, will a, will a man go and say he needs to relocate because his wife needs right, to have an abortion, right? right? No, it's not a, really a woman's issue. Yeah. This is a family issue. Yeah. But um, will that comes to also a conscious culture because ideally what we're creating is cultures where talking about hard things are more normalized. People spend the majority of their waking hours at work. Cultures at companies have to be places where people can be their authentic selves and deal with the real problems in their lives. Whether that's dealing with that, they're having to do distance learning with their kids, dealing with parents that are aging, dealing with sickness and illness, dealing with life challenges like this. Like mm -hmm. we need to find a place that we can support people in yeah, this with, way because there's health 
issues. Yes, yeah. exactly. And have approachable people that are designated to help. Maybe it isn't. I mean, a lot of times we know HR is there to protect the company. Mm-hmm. And that's why I have someone that's title is wellness and productivity manager. Wellness is a different role. And she knows that. Hi, Hannah. I'm sure you're going to listen to this. She knows that she has the authority to maintain confidential conversations about people's wellness. And if she can share what she needs to share with me, if that's, hey, someone's going through something right now and really needs some more support in these ways. And I'm not going to ask her, what's the thing that you're keeping from me that they told you? Like, we have some space for her to be able to do that job. And all companies need that. And maybe that's a different role than HR. It probably is, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. All right. So so you had this realization in a dusty tent at Burning Man. <laughs> dusty, like sweaty. 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and then you went away and built your own company in, in that time. And help companies now with this work. And now what is this? Yeah. So what does this look like now for you? What, what, what exactly yeah. are you doing? So we're doing conscious organizational work focused on leaders primarily right now. And we describe leaders as anybody that pushes for transformational change. So that could be executive, that could be a manager, that could be somebody that is the person that's always the one raising their hand saying, hey, we should do this differently. Mm-hmm. Um, what I have found is that everyone that pushes to create better organizations and transformation are the people, it's exhausting. I mean, it's beyond people's jobs. People have their jobs that they're doing functionally and then they see opportunity for improvement and then they stick their neck out to help push that change. And it is hard to be the person that always stands up for what's right, stands up for other people. And so my focus is really providing those people emotional support, education, community, so that they're more emboldened and supported to do the work that they know they need to be doing. Okay. And what does this look like in in practice? So the number one thing right now is called peer conversations, which is comes from clinical psychology, reflective supervision. Reflective supervision was used, is used and created for psychologists who are working with children who have experienced a lot of trauma. And these are adults who take on you know, have conversations are steeped in a lot of hard things. And so they need more emotional support to be able to do this kind of work. So that's where it originally comes from. I knew about this from Emily Santiago, who I do have a podcast with that is a trauma-informed educational psychologist. I collaborated with her. I got trained and certified in reflective supervision. And then I have adapted that with a conscious leadership program to meet the needs of the modern leader. So peer conversations is a small group format, five or six people. Everybody goes through an introduction, introductory training. It's roughly 90 minutes. Um, Everybody signs community agreements, including confidentiality agreements. And then we share wins, which is always fun to celebrate the great work that people are doing. And it's um, something that most leaders overlook and keep moving the goalpost to what's next. So it's really important to sit with the wins and share the wins and celebrate the wins with you and your team. We do that. And then we talk about emotions at work, this like scary term emotions at work. And we use a few different tools. We use different self-assessments, prompts to talk about different emotions. And people share stuff that there's really no other place to talk about. I mean, therapy's great. I love therapy. There's not enough therapists in the world to support everybody's emotional mental health needs. Mm-hmm. And especially like, you know, therapists are really have an important role. They diagnose emotional issues. They help people heal from those. 
this is something that I'd say like, you know, it's similar to therapy in the sense that there's a dedicated time and place where you're met with non-judgment and we talk about stuff, but we talk about what's going on and normalize emotions and have the group really just like not offer advice. We're not there to fix anybody. We're just there to have a space where we can listen, where feelings are validated with other people that know your experience. Um, I'll tell you how many times people after a peer conversation will message me just to say, Oh my gosh, I had no idea how much just being validated that what I'm going through in this specific circumstance is normal and that everybody has experienced it would feel the same way. I mean, I had a woman one time say in the middle of COVID, we're still in the middle of COVID, but, uh, um, in Texas, we're not (laughs) (laughs) right. Um, she said, I'm having trouble, honestly, just getting out of bed in the morning. And it shifted the energy of the group. It was such a vulnerable share. As a leader, we always have to feel like we have to be buttoned up and have to keep on everything's fine for our teams. And for her to share that with other leaders, everybody just kind of sighed. And I said, does everyone know what that feels like? And everyone on the call nodded their head. And all of a sudden she was like, Oh, because she felt alone in this struggle Mm -hmm. that she's not being a good entrepreneur. She's not being a good boss. She's not very great at leadership or whatever it is because she was feeling like so overwhelmed. She didn't want to get out of bed in the morning and be like, no, this is a common feeling. That one thing alone makes people feel better. And then when we communicate about emotions and express our emotions, we metabolize our emotions. You know, the history of the world in which most of us are raised, where it's all about metabolized emotional- by like feeling it in our bodies. Yes, right. Exactly. The most of us have been raised around emotional suppression, mm-hmm. which doesn't help anything at all. And in fact, that's like throwing shit in the closet and shutting the door real quick. Eventually, you open the door and it tumbles yeah, all out on falls you. On top of you, yeah. AKA road rage, AKA all sorts of. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I never get road rage. I wasn't pointing any fingers. It's just bad drivers in the United States. (laughs) Not pointing any fingers. Also, self reflection is always good. Um, Yeah, and most of us haven't learned emotional regulation. Yeah. And that's what peer conversations do. It's helped normalize emotions and emotional experiences when it comes to work, helps us process and metabolize our emotions. So we're not throwing them in the closet and they're not popping out when we least expect them. And we're being able to move on from them. And it's a reflective process. So people say to me all sorts of things like we last month, we focused on vulnerability. I had multiple leaders realize they don't do vulnerability at all they immediately shut it down they go on the defensive they go on the offensive and they literally in the call were like oh my gosh i just don't do vulnerability and i did not realize that before yeah and that's why reflective processes are so important and why this is the work that you know i think is missing from work it's um it's very similar to it's a format that that i'm seeing a lot in other domains and, and that I've actually talked to people about on the podcast. So I know with the, the podcast I did with Nick last week, yes, it was very serious and very hard hitting, but he, you know, one of the charities that he supports and one of the, the tools which has been really helpful in his recovery is, is a peer support group just aimed at people that are dealing with grief or depression or that they have a men's, it's called the new normal. Um, you know, I was chatting to another guy yesterday who's got this, this mood tracking app and I'm going to do a podcast with him this week. He told me about this thing which Ruby Wax, who people in the UK will will know about, called Frazzle Cafe, which is... I love that name. Yeah, no, it's brilliant, isn't it? Again, exactly the same principle, but it's sort of open to anybody sharing. And then, um, you know, the men's work stuff as well is, again, I think, very similar principle. You know, it's a closed group. It's a container. People can can talk about things privately. They can express anything that they want to, and and everybody else is there to to just empathise and not judge and not give advice, and and so it's definitely a um, a format that's that's gaining traction. Yeah. I guess the the question I have is that with with your version of it, are people just coming along and talking about work stuff, or or, or how personal do they get into, you know, I don't know if somebody's experiencing 
like serious mental health issues or relationship issues, are they allowed to bring those to, to this format? Yeah, people are allowed to because being a conscious leader also is about, you know, the fact, the whole human. So those things impact people and they impact people for work, right? If, mm-hmm. if you know, you're having some, ex, you know, extenuating circumstance in your life, which, you know, in the last couple of years have just been kind of constant, that stuff impacts your work. We do frame it mostly in a work context, but Mm -hmm. we also can bring all those other experiences because they impact work. But we are there to just like, you know, some of those groups are focused on mental health um, when it comes to, you know, grief or Mm -hmm. stuff that specific hours is the context is around the work leadership experience. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, I mean, I guess without going into specifics, what sort of things do people bring to the groups? Like what, what are the, what are the top issues you think that are, that are on people's minds that they need to, that they need to talk about? So there's two different things that happen in the group. Sometimes people bring stuff that are happening with them right now at work. And that might be dealing with their own boss who is toxic Mm -hmm. and that they don't have control over that. Right. And so we talk about that type of thing. So real challenges that people are facing, needing to let go of somebody um, as a manager and feeling so many feelings about that person really needs the money right now. I know that they're going to struggle for these reasons right now and the guilt and the shame and the all the things that go along with having to have these responsibilities. So we talk about that. And then also... I usually say, you know, we do some seller self-assessment. Does anyone have anything that came up for them or that they brought to the call they want to talk about so that those things can come up and we can talk about them? But then also, I usually have some other thing that we'll do um, a lot right now. We're talking about specific emotions and helping people. Like I said, we talked about vulnerability last month. Um, and this w- month, we're going to talk about anger. And we talk about how that shows up in their bodies because all of us with being steeped with emotional suppression don't really have skills around emotions. And so Mm -hmm. by being more self-aware, gaining emotional intelligence about ourselves, that lends itself to also doing this kind of work and being empathetic and being able to understand these and other people. And so, and then, you know, it's back to where people are sharing around specific emotional experience. And when people are sharing around an emotional experience that is shared, when you know what that feels like, it resonates in your body. And so then we have somatic empathy Mm -hmm. and that's part of metabolizing the emotion. Mm-hmm. Both the people that are sharing, it gets metabolized, but also we metabolize the emotion that we have in our bodies that lets us relate to that emotion in somebody else. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, how does You this... want to know something? What? When I just said like somatic empathy, yeah. I could feel your body connect to uh, mine as well. There you go. Like it's cool that even just having a conversation about this can shift somebody's state into being more present mm-hmm. well you know i've also done a lot of work on this stuff Richard. yes you have <laughs> um all right how does this play out differently for men and women um because i know you have some groups that are mixed you've got a men's only group yeah i don't think you have any women's only groups um, i do but it wasn't because it's I just intended. by default it's by default yeah um I mean, I guess a couple of questions like, uh, are, are they, are they showing up with different issues? Do they need to be like single sex groups? And also how does this relate to, cause I know you, you know, you, you've got a lot of thoughts about, you know, the patriarchal like work culture and all that sort of stuff. How, how does it play into that? Yeah. The biggest thing I guess that's been the most profound with this is the stuff that I think in mixed gender groups how much, how eye-opening it is to know that we all have the shared experience Mm -hmm. and things aren't as gendered as we think. Um, I remember on one call, a woman said, 
she had just had her first event since COVID. Events are part of her business. And the, she caught herself after doing these peer conversations and being more reflective in, in her body. Um, she caught herself really criticizing how could I have had more people? What if I would have been more communicative about our COVID policies? How could I blah, blah, and then caught herself and recognized, oh my gosh, I'm sitting here criticizing every single thing with perfectionism instead of celebrating. I just did my first event post COVID mm -hmm. and it was successful and people had a good time and they got a lot out of it. And she then said to a guy on the call, I would love to know from you because this feels like such a women's response of perfectionism if it really is just women and he said no 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 i recognize every single thing that you just said that happens to me too and i cannot tell you the number of times that has happened and in that moment it was all women and one man and all the women were like really all of us believed that perfectionism was ultimately a woman's kind of uh, result of patriarchy. And by the way, with patriarchy, women and men are, uh, are the, the people that are hurt by it, not just women. But um, so in mixed genders groups, we learn a lot from each other that these are shared things and we're all going through them. Women uh, typically seem to have more language around them, mm -hmm. um, seem to have more ability to understand their sensations in their body and how mm -hmm. it relates to emotions. Um, I think that's just cultural and more experience and being able to do that through in society. But um, yeah, so that's one of the most profound things. I think men a lot of times want either a men's group. I think everybody that's been in the program hasn't cared if it's men or a women's group. I do have some men's groups and I would say there's really no difference. Um, except for, I guess I am more careful to make sure that I'm helping with the languaging piece and guiding a little bit more on the embodiment piece. Mm -hmm. Cause with some really embodied women, I can say, go into your body and tell me the sensations that come up when you remember a time when you were angry. And mm -hmm. they'll be like, my heart was racing. I felt like my blood pressure go up. I had constriction in my chest. My fingers felt tingly really quickly. Yeah. Where sometimes men are more like, huh, that's tough for me to remember. Uh, and I have to yeah. guide them a little bit more, but there are women that need to be guided too. I mean, all of us have done a pretty good job of learning to suppress emotions and yeah. compartmentalize. Um, all right. Th this, I had this question for, for, for Tim Neal, who I did a podcast with last week. He's a, he's a men's coach. We were just talking about the format of men's groups, which, you know, there are a number of similarities. Um, but you know, you're getting into a gray area when it comes to therapy, right? Or you get, you're, I think you're, there's you're, a lot of overlap you're touching on similar, similar themes, similar subjects. Um, what do you do if somebody like somebody could start downloading in one of these groups and it could turn into a into something traumatic that is beyond the scope of this group and that they need to they need to be seen by a professional okay a, a different professional right well a few things on that number one trauma and supporting trauma isn't just in the vein of therapy mm-hmm Lots of people are trauma informed and have skills to help support people having a trauma exposure response and even flooding where their parasympathetic systems taking over mm -hmm. fight, flight, freeze and helping them uh, manage that. So dealing with trauma is not just for therapists. Um, however, in the context of peer conversations, in that case, if something came up, I would pause as gently as I can, tell that person that I think this is something that we should talk about one-on-one -on -one, mm -hmm. and that I would contain it and give them tools in that moment to mm -hmm. help them be safe. And if I needed to leave the group for that person to be safe, I would leave the group to talk to that person one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. Um, 
and then ascertain when talking to that person, whether they have a therapist, whether that is something that they need support on. Um, Mm -hmm. I do have the tools to be able to help someone in that moment. Mm -hmm. At the same time, my focus and function as a coach and as a reflective supervisor isn't to heal emotional trauma, Mm -hmm. but emotional trauma can come up when talking about emotions. Right. So to me, you know, the healing work, although talking about your feelings is healing. So, you know, and, and there's a lot of ways in which it's healing, but you know, I do. And those are the types of things where I would point somebody to a therapist. Yeah. Um, okay. You touched on coaching. Um, so you're doing, you're doing some of that as well. How does, how does one-on-one coaching differ to a peer group? In the peer groups, I'm not really coaching. I mean, it is technically a form of coaching, I am more um, a facilitator of a conversation between people and help role model emotional regulation and and make sure that everything is contained and safe for all the people. Um, Coaching is different. Coaching Mm -hmm. is way more action oriented, goal oriented, action oriented. What is what are you trying to accomplish? What is your perception of what's getting in the way? And looking at um, my coach, who I've been training with, uh, Lisa Morell, she has a systems methodology that also looks at everything around, and I do too, uh, everything around the person, including you know companies, including the company culture, um, the environment in which people live. You know, mm-hmm. really kind of looking at a More lifestyle things 360 you know is this belief system issue perspective issue is this you know cultural issue is this more process oriented like what is the thing identify and brainstorming together and strategizing and figuring out you know where where the places are that need to be um shifted yeah and then supporting the shift it's still not giving people advice it's still not giving people advice how I mean, do that's you, more like consulting, which, you know, I have a giant background in consulting. Yeah. And that at first was the hardest thing for me because it was natural for me to consult. How, and I've done so much work on myself and da, 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 I have a lot of tools. However, one of the things that's helped me shift is that when I use the coaching model, which is more about asking questions and, and, and assuming the person I'm coaching is Ref, uh, naturally resourceful, creative, and the expert on their own lives. Whenever I have a, a thought that I might normally offer as advice, I'll get curious and ask kind of a question that helps me understand how they think about that thing. And a hundred percent of the time, their answer is better than the answer I would have given them. Mm-hmm. So that has taught me they know better about their own life than I do. I, my job is just to be a in a relationship with them where they feel safe. And it's my job to ask big, important questions that help people think outside of the box that they've created for themselves. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Should we talk about horses? <gasps> Please. <laughs> you know, that's, that's funny. I'm like on my way here, you know, running a little late to our podcast. Cause I was at the barn and I just love it so much. First of all, I think everybody should be as nature as much as humanly possible. We are not separate from it. We are part of it and we need it to um, recalibrate. But horses for me are, you know, the next level of that. Yeah. So then um, do you want to talk about the equine coaching sure. elements of this and how, how using horses plays into this conscious leadership and coaching? and? Yeah. Well, um for one, I've had such profound shifts with myself from my horse and everybody that has a horse knows what I'm talking about. And so I was interested in learning more about the why of that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I started going online this path. And I have a big, um, just kind of like North star with the word pleasure and what feels good to me. And that felt good to me to explore. And I just keep going further and further down that path uh, because it feels good. But 
one of the things when it comes to coaching or therapy, frankly, you know, horses are used for both is that so much of the work is getting people into a reflective state so that they can make shifts in perspective. Mm -hmm. The horses are a forcing function. Immediately people are shift into a state of presence with a horse. Number one, because they're a thousand pounds or more. And so from a safety perspective, you have to stay present and aware. So they do a lot of the work for us in that way. And then the other thing is they just really are magical creatures. You know, I mean, I, I need some help. Maybe you can help me with the research part of this, but there are multiple teachers and books that I've read and have taught me who say that horses are the oldest living mammal that's mm-hmm. survived like from the ice age survived the ice age and have been around for like 56 million years since the time of dinosaurs mm-hmm. i haven't personally proven that fact um but i i would like to um but the thinking is that they are amazing at survival and have a lot that we can learn from because of their ancient ancestry that knows how to survive Um, I do believe this and horses have an ability to mirror us in a pretty interesting way. And they act as a, you know, in coaching and the reflective supervision, we look for prompts that allow people to reflect then that they can share and go deeper. The horses do the same thing. You know, one of the exercises we do, I have people really, um, see what they notice through this no talk, no touch exercise with horses and they do multiple horses and I have them do something else and then go back and do it again. And it's a little bit of a process and it's very interesting because what people share, you know, the horse didn't like me or the horse doesn't want to talk to me because they felt like I was being in their space and they don't want me in their space. The horse really liked me. and wanted to play with me. Um, you know, they tell me all sorts of things that, help create amazing prompts mm-hmm. um so hang on with a with an example like that what does somebody take away from that if they're if they're a business leader and they come and they do some equine coaching and they have an experience like that how, like how does that then impact what they take away into their professional life it creates more self-awareness and also because we then debrief after that there's self-awareness that happens about the stories and the biases we tell ourselves. So for example, the first time I did this exercise, I recognized that I felt rejected because the horse didn't want to interact with me. Didn't kiss you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I realized I always felt rejected if a horse didn't immediately kind of want to come say hi to me. And this horse in particular was just eating. And then through the reflective process, I actually realized that I am reserved with new relationships and i don't always the first time someone's in my space go up to them to be like hey let's be friends which is what i was expecting of the horse Mm -hmm. and also i don't do it because it's just preserving my own boundaries and what i want and so then i was able to be oh that horse maybe has nothing to do with me (laughs) maybe that horse just like doesn't know me and it wants to do its own thing so I realized both how much me being standoffish could make other people feel rejected. Mm -hmm. And that then I can also look at someone that's being standoffish with me is not about me. Mm -hmm. So all of that happened through this one exercise. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So then I'm interacting with people differently in every way after that, both from a perspective of how I might be perceived and making sure that I'm not making assumptions about other people's reason why they're behaving a certain way and not making it about me. Yeah. I've got a million of these stories. I mean, there's a woman that did um, one of our retreats recently and she recognized how much she's bringing stories and fear and biases to her work and how then that is actually impacting the outcome in potentially a negative way. Mm-hmm. And she didn't realize she was bringing all this bias to the interaction. Yeah. Huge. Same exercise. Yeah. Um, a question on sort of 
industries and workplaces that are very much not conscious. And, you know, if I think about, I think there was some comments by like the head of Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or something just about like, like, this is ridiculous. People need to get back to the office and blah, blah, blah. Like, like it's, it's business as usual on Wall Street sort of thing. Um, are those businesses going to keep doing what they're doing because people still want to go work for them and make the big money and they're prepared to put up with the shit that comes with that? I say the healthier people are, the less likely that is to function. I think that more and more and more people every day are mm-hmm. waking up and saying, Fuck you know this. what? Yeah. Fuck this. Yeah. I, the value exchange is not worth it. I am not going to sacrifice my mental, emotional, physical health, because mm-hmm. let's be honest, emotional health and mental health affect physical health. There's no, you know, extrapolating these things. We are a integrated environment inside us and all of these things impact each other. And I'm not going to do it for money. Every day, more and more people are waking up to that. Mm-hmm. And sure, there are maybe always going to be unhealthy people that say, fine, give me the money, I'll do it. But I think my goal is to eliminate that. And my goal is for healthy and healthy people to demand that they work at places that are healthy for them. Yeah. I mean, it's just really ridiculous. Sure. Business can be profitable. You can trade, but also, you know, work life needs to be balanced. People, people should not be working 60, 70 hours. It's one thing to have like a, a moment in time, you know, as a, my, you know, before our pivot into really focus on the leadership space and we were doing social and digital marketing for big companies, when there's a big campaign that has to launch, we all know we're going to have to all rise to the occasion. That may be a 60 hour work week and there may be two of those, but we put in place that our company culture is a 35 hour work week mm-hmm. with pretty generous vacation policy so that the norm isn't that. And then people have something that they can pull from because they're balanced to be able to rise up, but that we don't expect people to work like that forever. It is impossible. Yeah. People get sick. People have heart attacks. You know, a lot of people that lead this kind of thing look terrible. Yeah. What about in the sort of, um, you know, startup entrepreneur, I think business owner, create a good company culture from scratch, have the best talent, get the best talent because you have the best culture. Hang on. You didn't listen to my question. I'm like, fuck crush it culture. (laughs) I hate it. No, but like sometimes in those environments, um, it's very hard to escape the pressure and it might be, you know, the pressure of being, you know, just look at my own situation, that pressure of being like the, the sole owner of a business and bearing that financial risk a hundred percent. And you're at the whim of the, the, the success or failure of the business. And maybe you're in a, you know, your business just doesn't have the resources to do much of this stuff. Like how, how do you, what do you I'll do in frank. that situation? I'll be frank. If your business can't afford to have the people that work at it, work at it in a, th- in a way that's healthy for them, then you mm-hmm. can't afford to be in business. Mm-hmm. Period. Should McDonald's be able to make money off people working at wages that are terrible for them and, you know, totally not functional no, they to shouldn't. serve a inexpensive cheap meat i mean no yeah then you know what we should be cooking at home more or we should you know be digging up parks and growing vegetables and yeah we need to find other solutions if that solution is not functional yeah i mean it begs the question whether how much of this at a very top level is just down to the fact that capitalism shapes everything that we do in such a way and we're we're like the whole society is geared towards more 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 like businesses are always under pressure to 
to to grow more and to to create more profits and but what businesses uh, by who like sh- any any business, with share- business any business with shareholders yeah right that's true i would say that like the majority of businesses behave in that way i suspect you're right i don't i don't really have stats on that um percentage wise but I mean, I don't know what to say other than like we have to demand, you know, the companies are made of people. Yeah. People are in control ultimately. The more people that are like, no, we're not doing it, mm-hmm. the more that, that it's impossible. Yeah. I mean, right? That the, the, the pay for restaurants workers right now is going up and up and up and up because so many people are like, nope not doing it and when businesses can't find people all of a sudden yeah they have to either change how they're paying people change what they're charging or realize their business is not actual a profitable business yeah yeah so what does um what does the future look like for all this i think the future is feminine (laughs) (laughs) i think that women need to step up i think that Men have been running stuff for a very long time and you've had your chance. And now women need to step up and run things. I think that the, if you think about the yin yang sign, masculine has been in so much control of so many things that it's totally the whole thing's out of balance. And it's basically spinning into, you know, complete recklessness toxic masculinity ah, violence culture and oppression and on and on and on and on and the feminine needs to rise up to create a balance between the two because i think the balance is what we seek but we can't do it until the women step up it's a healthy polarity between the two yeah this is something that that tim and i talked about last week on the podcast i agree Um, well and then i'm a I'm a fan of Sheila Kelly's teaching. Uh, she's the founder of S factor and she, I just went to one of her retreats and one of the things that she was sharing, no, it wasn't her. It was mama Gina who was there and presenting had some, um, story. And I, I feel like it's indigenous, uh, in original originality, but origin story, but also so is most healthy things in my opinion. Um, but it had something to do with this, like, I'm just not going to get the story right, but you'll get what I'm saying. With this bird that if the masculine is one wing and the feminine is the other wing, that the masculine is super strong and big and powerful and the feminine is very weak and off to the side. What happens if a bird has one wing flapping around? It's going to fly yeah. in circles. Yeah. Right? We need both sides to be equally strong. Um, and then when I think that happens, then I think that we have a more balanced culture and that's ultimately what we're all trying to get to. And if we're not, then I ask you, why not? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm sold. I agree. <laughs> um, all right. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about, Gretchen? I guess just the extenuation of that, you know, I just posted today on social where I'm the most outspoken. Um, I, someone was asking me about me posting sexy pictures of myself being empowered and that I don't really need to ask anyone that they feel like I just do whatever I want to do. And that's not true. I always have to dig deep for my own strength and conviction to share things that society says we're not allowed to share ways women aren't allowed to be and until women are allowed to have complete bodily autonomy share our bodies with whomever we want in whatever ways we want own our sexuality then i don't think we can be free and i am always going to be the person that's pushing the envelope of quote-unquote appropriateness Mm -hmm. because those rules come from men trying to control women's bodies and I just refuse. And so, you know, I think part of women 
getting that strong wing is to break the ties of all these rules about what women are supposed to be. And, and women, I mean, it's crazy. Be quiet, but not too quiet. That's annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, be thin, but not too thin. Be a little bit sexy in the way that I think you're sexy, but not too sexy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally what what the line is like walking on a tightrope all the time for yeah. people to think you're okay. Yeah. And fuck that. So I'm just encouraging all the women <laughs> to say fuck that and all the partners of women out there to encourage them to say fuck that. Yeah. Fuck that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I think this is a good point to end. Fuck that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Gretchen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'll put some links in the description with um, if people are interested in learning more about what you're doing and um, where they can go to do that. Okay. Thank All right. You. Thanks. Bye.